What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. Today, Katha Pollock talks about France banning the burkini from the beach. French officials say the ban is a blow against the subjugation of Muslim women. Katha has a different view. Also, the state of the working class in the labor movement this Labor Day weekend, Harold Meyerson will comment. But first... Dr. Jill Stein is the Green Party candidate for president. She holds the current record for the most votes ever received by a woman candidate for president of the U.S. in the general election. She's a mother, an organizer, a physician, and she's a pioneering environmental health advocate. Jill Stein, welcome to the program. Great to be with you, John. Well, I should tell you, I voted green in one presidential election. I think you probably know which one, Mm -hmm. 2000. In 2000, I didn't want to support a conservative Democrat, so I voted green. You will remember that Bush officially carried Florida by 500 votes, while 100,000 people like me voted for the Green Party candidate, Ralph Nader. A lot of people, of course, blame the Green Party for Bush becoming president and taking us into a war in Iraq. I have a lot of friends who say Jill Stein has great ideas. Jill Stein is a wonderful person but they don't want something like that to happen again this year. What do you say to those people? Well, one thing to say to them is that if Al Gore had been able to win his home state, then people wouldn't be, you know, complaining about Florida. Uh, And if you wanted to silence the Greens because we are a voice of political opposition, you would have to have silenced every other progressive political party that also earned at least that margin of difference in Florida. So let me just say the answer to a wounded, uh, desperate democracy on life support, the answer to this crisis is not less democracy. We need to have vibrant political opposition. One way we could solve this in the blink of an eye is to pass a voting reform called ranked choice voting. It's a win-win. It's a no-brainer. We already use it in cities across the country and countries around the world. It lets you rank your choice for president. So that way we can actually bring our values to our vote, because how can you have a democracy if you're just voting for who you are just voting against, who you're most afraid of? Democracy needs an affirmative agenda. It needs a moral compass to guide it forward. Why not have the best of both worlds? Let's vote our values and let's create that small voting reform. We could even do it now on an emergency basis and ensure that a voter can go to the polls and rank their choices, knowing if your number one loses, your vote is automatically reassigned to your second choice. And I'll just say, the first time I ran for office in Massachusetts, running against Mitt Romney for governor back in 2002, We filed this bill with a progressive Democratic legislator uh, to ensure that there would be no unintended consequences of your vote. The Democrats who control that legislature enormously will not let that bill out of committee, even 16 years later 
What does that tell you? They rely on fear to intimidate your vote because they are not on your side. That alone should be enough to lose them the power of your vote. We have to put our feet down and start building our power because it's not getting better. It is a race to the bottom between the greater and the lesser evil. Certainly since Bush, Nader, Gore, it has continued. And with all the crisis of the war that Bush led us into, there are indicators, and Gore himself has said, that he supported that policy, actually. It's not clear that he would have done something different. And furthermore, Obama had the opportunity to change direction with two Democratic houses of Congress, but he only plunged headlong, you know, the surge into Afghanistan, actually dug his heels in and tried not to get us out of Iraq, and was forced to do that because of a deadline imposed by George Bush by concluding the um, defense of uh, U.S. forces uh, who would then become liable for their crimes in Iraq. So he was forced to pull out. But in the meantime, you know, we've got expanding war all over the place. It is a bipartisan disaster we need to challenge that at all levels in order to take a new direction. The left has argued for decades in the United States about whether it's better to fight inside the Democratic Party or outside the Democratic Party. Bernie Sanders, his whole life, was outside the Democratic Party. This year, for the first time, he ran in the Democratic primaries, and he got 13 million votes, far more than any third party on the left outside the Democratic Party has ever gotten. Doesn't that show that progressives have much more success when they run inside the Democratic Party? But what, you know, where did these, what was the impact of these 13 million votes? I think what we've learned is that you can't have a revolutionary campaign in a counter-revolutionary party. We saw how the Democratic Party, the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, the emails showed how they actually sabotaged Bernie Sanders' campaign, colluded with the Clinton campaign uh, and with members of the corporate media in order to steeply tilt the playing field against Bernie Sanders. And this wasn't just something that happened to Bernie. You know, this has been the rule, not the exception, for every true revolutionary, uh, every true um, campaign for real change. They've all been sabotaged, whether you look at Dennis Kucinich, who got redistricted by the Democrats along with the Republicans, whether you look at Jesse Jackson, who was also sabotaged by a PR smear campaign, or Dean Howard Dean, for that matter, not not necessarily a progressive, but certainly a peace candidate who was sabotaged with the Dean scream, a completely concocted public relations smear campaign. And even now we're learning in our revolution, this uh, living legacy of, of Bernie's campaign inside the Democratic Party, it's peeling way back. It's not able to support true um, progressive candidates. You know, this is what that Bernie revolution has devolved to inside the Democratic Party. It never could have gotten started like this without him and without the Democratic Party. And, you know, I think we thank our lucky stars that uh, history has lined up the way it has to enable this jumpstart for real political revolution that has now broken free on the day that Bernie endorsed uh, Hillary. The floodgates opened into our campaign uh, with Bernie Sanders volunteers, donors, etc., uh, and that floodgates, uh, you know, continue to be wide open and people continue to learn the same lesson. We need an independent political party. The burners aren't going away. They are really committed. You know, the most impassioned and uh, inspired uh, political movement that we've seen in a long time, they now have a permanent political home. It's a marriage made in heaven. I'm seeing it all across the country. And, you know, we ain't seen nothing yet. One last thing. My friends say Jill Stein has great ideas. Jill Stein is a terrific person. But Donald Trump is a unique challenge and problem. Uh, Gary Young, for example, who was a columnist at The Nation, wrote, uh, we need to distinguish between political opponents who are merely bad and those who represent an existential threat to democratic rights. Mitt Romney was bad. It's a good thing he didn't become president. But Trump is of a different order entirely, quoting from Gary Young. His election would represent a paradigmatic shift in what is possible for the American right. Do you agree with that assessment of Trump's candidacy? Um, I certainly 
join those who will not sleep well at night if Donald Trump is elected. But I also join those who will not sleep well if Hillary Clinton is elected. In my view, these are both lethal um, campaigns that very much threaten our future. And as um, despicable as the things are that Donald Trump says, Hillary Clinton has an extremely troubling, troubling and disastrous record, including plunging us headlong into Libya, a charge that she led, approving of the war in Iraq, wanting to start a no-fly zone over Syria, which amounts to uh, basically war with Russia in the air. We are two armed nuclear powers with 2,000 nuclear weapons on hair-trigger alert. I'm not going to sleep good with Hillary Clinton uh, as commander-in-chief either. And I'd say, remember this, the majority of Donald Trump's supporters um, do not actually support Donald Trump. They are motivated by not liking Hillary Clinton. And the news gives us more every day to be worried about the culture of influence that Hillary Clinton represents. Uh, in the Clinton Foundation, as we've seen in her emails, et cetera, people are very worried uh, about where we're going under Hillary Clinton. So, you know, in my view, we are not limited to two choices here. And let's give all those reluctant Trump supporters something else to be for. We still have enough time in this election for some profound things to happen. Remember, there are 43 million young people and not so young people who are trapped in predatory student loan debt. If word gets out that they can actually come out and vote for the one candidate, and you're listening to her right now, <laughs> who will actually cancel that debt like we did for the crooks on Wall Street for a much smaller price tag, we can cancel the debt of young people, which creates basically the stimulus package of our dreams, liberates a generation that does not have a future, in my experience, when they hear about our campaign, they don't just say, oh, I'll vote for you. It's like suddenly they are missionaries on a religious mission to tell everybody they know. If 43 million people in debt, let alone a family member, but just those 43 million, if they come out to vote green to end their debt, that's a winning plurality of the vote. This is not an impossible scenario in this election where every rule in the rule book has already been tossed out. There are ways to imagine not where we split the vote, but where we actually flip the vote. We say, let's get into the debates, support real open debates. We need that if we're going to have even the pretense of a democracy in this election. And let's see where the American people decide to go, because the majority has, have already spoken. They dislike and distrust Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump at record levels, and they are clamoring for something else. Let's allow democracy to uh, create its healing power, its healing possibilities. Let's let democracy go forward before we foreclose this possibility of actually a progressive solution in this race. We know the votes are out there. Bernie won, hands down, uh, on every head-to-head -head comparison. There is the potential to win not just Hillary, reluctant Hillary supporters, and not just reluctant Donald Trump supporters, but an entire generation of young people who are tending to sit this one out because they don't see a future for themselves in either of these uh, establishment political campaigns. I should just add that at The Nation magazine, John Nichols has called for opening the debates to the uh, independent candidates because they have good ideas that we need to hear. My favorite of the Jill Stein good ideas, in addition to uh, canceling student debt, is the Green New Deal. Tell us about the Green New Deal. So the Green New Deal is an emergency jobs program to solve not only our economic emergency, but also to solve our climate emergency. Because, in fact, we do have two emergencies. The recovery has largely been restricted to those at the top. Workers now are still making wages that are barely above poverty. And the jobs that have come back are low-wage, part-time, insecure, temporary jobs. So most people are struggling economically. And we're never going to solve the climate crisis unless it is fundamentally a job solution as well. So um, the... The climate crisis, on the other hand, you know, we're seeing in the headlines now the fires on the in the West Coast, the uh, floods in Louisiana. Every month is a new record uh, world high temperature for the month of that name. 
Um, and the science is now telling us we could see nine feet of sea level rise as soon as 2050, which will be a civilization-ending development. So we need to act now if we're going to prevent that. We've got two emergencies. The Green New Deal is one fell swoop to address both of them. Creates 20 million jobs. It's sort of a New Deal-type solution, except that these are focused on an emergency transition to a green economy with 100% clean renewable energy by 2030, which is what the science tells us we need to do if we're actually going to fix this. But we can do that. We also call for a healthy food system, local, organic, sustainable food systems, which are good for us as well as good for the planet, good for the climate, good for farm workers. Uh, and we call for public transportation, renewably powered, that dovetails with recreational transportation so we can bike and uh, walk safely to transit hubs. Um, this is essentially the stimulus package of our dreams. Uh, it will achieve not only 100% renewables by 2030, we also call for an immediate ban on all new fossil fuel infrastructure and development. It'll revive the economy, it'll turn the tide on climate change, and it makes the wars for oil obsolete, which is part of how we pay for this. It enables us to cut this bloated, dangerous military budget, which is eating up more than half of our discretionary budget, about half of our income tax dollars, are paying for these wars, which have only created failed states, mass refugee migrations, and worse terrorist threats. So we need daylight shined on this discussion. That's another reason why I need to be in the debate. I'll be on the only one telling the truth about the war. But the Green New Deal enables us to offload this dangerous military budget. We don't need a thousand bases in a hundred countries around the world, basically patrolling our fossil fuel um, uh, access to other people's energy and the routes of transportation. Instead, we've got that energy here at home so we can put our military dollars into true security here at home. And the other way we pay for the Green New Deal is that we get so much healthier uh, on fully powered uh, clean renewable energy. We get so much healthier so quickly that the savings in healthcare alone is enough to pay for the green energy transition. That means less asthma, less cancers, heart attacks, and strokes. And with the healthy uh, food component of this, it means less of that diabetes and obesity uh, epidemics that we're also paying for with, you know, with health, with survival, you know, with, uh, with our tax dollars as well for the inordinate cost, $3 trillion a year we are paying for not health care, but basically sick care in a sick care system that's trying to compensate for how this predatory food system, this predatory energy system, and this chaos of a transportation system, which is passive, all make us sick and contribute the boatload of the cost. The vast majority of these $3 trillion are spent on diseases that are absolutely avoidable if we were doing the right thing up front. So the Green New Deal is a win-win-win all around, including that it pays for itself. One last question, the experience uh, question. A lot of my friends say Jill Stein has great ideas, but she has no experience as an elected official. Hillary has a lifetime of experience, and therefore she's more able to deal with all the problems of what politics is, the art of the possible. What do you say about the experience question? Well, it's true. I definitely do not have experience of taking money from the predatory <laughs> banks, from the fossil fuel giants, from the war profiteers, from the insurance companies. So, yes, I come to this as a physician, not a politician. But I also come to this as an activist. And I have plenty of experience helping to build coalitions of ordinary citizens in order to get things done as citizen activists. And that includes cleaning up our coal plants in Massachusetts, where I was part of the leadership of that campaign. It includes shutting down toxic incinerators and uh, environmental racism, which is poisonous to everybody, but particularly communities of color. I had a lot of experience passing campaign finance reform in Massachusetts, which we passed as a voter referendum. And guess who repealed it? 
the guys with all that experience in our legislature. We, the voters, passed it as a referendum, and those experienced politicians took away campaign finance reform and public funding. And remind you, mind you, this was the Democratic legislature, or 85% Democratic, which said to me in no uncertain terms that change will not come, not only from the predators in politics, but it will not come from the Democratic Party. I've actually served uh, approximately five years uh, on my town meeting in Lexington, but I have served much longer watchdogging uh, our democracy, watchdogging Congress, watchdogging uh, my legislature in Massachusetts so that we, the people, actually get a word in edgewise. People say, aren't you afraid of Donald Trump? Yes, I'm afraid of Donald Trump, but I'm really afraid of climate change. I'm afraid of war under Hillary Clinton or under Donald Trump. I'm afraid of expanding nuclear weapons and uh, nuclear confrontation. That is not going to be solved by either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. Let's let democracy go forward. Let's have the real debate here and let's allow the American people to decide and let's give those reluctant Trump voters someone else that they can support who's actually on their side, who's not sending their jobs overseas, who's not uh, cheating on their workers, who's not rooking their students and, and uh, misleading their students and cheating them out of, their, uh, out of their tuition. We can have an America and a future that works for all of us. We have to forget this propaganda of the lesser evil and fight for the greater good like our lives depend on it. The minute we do that, the minute we stand up with the courage of our convictions, we can then see the reality that we actually have the numbers here to win the day. We can do that on the power of student debt alone. Jill Stein, she's the Green Party candidate for president. Jill, thanks so much for coming in today. It's been great having you. Really great talking with you, John. Now it's time for Burkini Radio. For that, we turn to Katha Pollitt, poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation magazine. Her most recent book is Pro-Reclaiming Abortion Rights. It's out now in paperback. We reached her today in Connecticut. Hi, Katha. Hi, John. I feel like I should be wearing a bathing suit. <laughs> well, several cities in France along the Riviera have banned the burkini, and then a French court said they couldn't do it, but now it's become a political issue there. It's going to be a political political issue in France for the coming uh, season. The burkini is a form of swimwear for Muslim women who follow the Koran's injunction to cover and be modest in dress. It's a long-sleeved tunic with pants and a hood. It's 100% polyester. It's lightweight and quick-drying. It provides UV protection. The burkini leaves only the face, hands, and feet visible. The socialist prime minister of France, Manuel Valls, called the burkini, quote, a symbol of the enslavement of women, close quote. I wonder if you agree. No, I don't agree. I think uh, there are a lot of things that are symbolic of the enslavement of women, uh, if you wanted to go that route. But I think what France is doing is both, at this point, disingenuous, ineffective, and cruel. You know, when all this banning of Muslim dress started, uh, the rationale was partly oh, well, women are being, for, you know, schoolgirls are being forced into the hijab and women are being forced into niqabs and burqas or whatever. And so we have to protect them by making a law against these things. It turns out that these fears were, were quite overblown. Um, I mean, not to say that it never happens, but it's not the main reason why women, Muslim women want to wear um, religious dress. They want to wear religious dress because they're religious. So what what do you make of the in, the injunction to women to be quote modest? It's not just the Orthodox Muslims, but also Jews and and some Christians see the female body as a danger and a provocation to men. They say it's not a good idea for women to provoke men to unclean thoughts. Oh, I know. Well, this is the other, this is the flip side of it, which is that, you know, the idea of modesty is so gendered. I mean, for example, uh, men don't have to wear, don't have to wear a face veil. Men don't have to 
wear a burkini and you often see uh, couples or families on the beach where the woman is dressed in um, some religious cover-up and the man is dressed like a normal person in a speedo on the beach or um, men go around with their with their shirt with 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 their shirts off all the time and you know that, that it's the idea you must provoke men um, but nobody thinks well you mustn't provoke women what about that um, nobody cares about that because it's all about controlling women's bodies whether it's you have to show something or you can't show something and that's what's wrong with the whole thing we saw news photos last week I think it was in ne- on the beach in Nice, four French policemen in bulletproof vests with guns uh, at their hips, forcing, um, appearing to force a Muslim woman to remove uh, an aqua tunic that covered her arms and hips. Really ugly. Oh, I thought that was so shocking. And I do think that that is uh, one of the reasons why this issue uh, turned around a little bit in France, because it was uh, it, it just went totally viral, that photograph. And what you saw was this rather rotund, middle-aged-looking woman who was taking a nap on the beach, and she's forced to remove this very ordinary garment, not a burkini, not a, you know, a religious garment, um, and she's forced at gunpoint to take off her clothes. I mean, this is really crazy, especially when you consider that, you know, if you go back a couple of de- decades, the police would have been there forcing people to put on more clothes put more clothes on. But it was so cruel, so heartless, so humiliating. And I just don't understand what the French think they are going to accomplish by this. I mean, they have, they do have a problem. They have a problem with a, with segregation. They have a problem with Muslims not being able to get jobs, with them being confined, uh, you know, shunted off in these, um, sub, these terrible suburbs that are it's very hard to get transportation out of. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. That's their problem. Their problem is that people need to be educated. People need to be integrated into society. People need to be protected with laws against discrimination. Forcing people to wear or not wear certain clothes is going to have the opposite effect. Many French people would also say they have another problem: a, a, a problem of terrorism. Well, yes, there is that, and I, you know, and I think it's probably not an accident that these bans really took off in on the Riviera after there were two, you know, terrible acts of terrorism uh, earlier this summer, the, when that truck driver ran amok and killed four, 84 people and injured a whole lot more, and then when a priest was killed in, in the north of France. But I just don't see how fetishizing a religious garment is going to have any positive effect of any kind. And it's certainly not going to stop terrorism. Well, the defenders of the French ban on the burkini make at least a couple of arguments beyond the idea that it's a symbol of the enslavement of women. Let me try these out on you. The first is what we could call the when in Rome argument. If you were in Saudi Arabia and going to the beach, would you go topless? No, because you respect their culture. So they, they in quotes, should have the same respect for French culture when they're in France that we have for their culture when we're in the Persian Gulf. What do you think of the when in Rome argument? Well, I think when you're visiting Rome, um, it's wise to show respect for the customs of Rome. When you live in Rome, when you're raising children in Rome, when you're a citizen of Rome, then it's a little different. Then the question becomes more, well, what should the rules be? How should one live in Rome? The analogy you're making assumes that these Muslims, millions of Muslims who have made their home in France for many decades, and who many of whom came from, from uh, Algeria, which was a French colony, where the French colonists certainly didn't live like the Algerians were living. Um, but the, the point is, these people are just as much citizens of France as I'm a citizen of the United States. Another argument, we could call it the slippery slope argument. First, they, in quotes, they demand the right to wear burkinis. Next, they'll demand separate beach areas for men and women. And then they'll say, we will not allow our sons to be taught in French schools by women whose heads are uncovered. Where does it stop if not nipped in the bud now? That's actually a quote from a letter published in the New York Times. What do you think of the slippery slope argument? 
I generally don't like slippery slope arguments because it implies that you can't stop. Um, whereas, of course, you can. Um, for example, abortion is permitted up to a certain time and not thereafter. Uh, you're allowed to you're allowed to put your sick cat to sleep, but you're not allowed to torture it to death. I mean, you know. So in this case, I would say that to say that somebody can wear what they want on the beach is a is a permission. It is not the same as saying you can't go to this part of the beach if you're a man or you can't go to this part of the beach if you're a woman. It's not the same as saying you have to wear a, a hijab if you want to teach my son in a public school or uh, these are these are all very different things. And I think it's very it is a liberal, secular and humane thing that gives everybody freedom to say you can wear what you want on the beach. Um, somebody wearing a burkini does not take away my right to wear my uh, my little one piece or a or a bikini. Should I choose to do that, which I'm not going to do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the um, the purpose of modesty rules is to avoid provoking men, but the mayor of Cannes has said repeatedly that the burkini is quote a provocation. It seems like whatever you do, men are provoked. I'm, I'm so confused. Well, uh, you're a man. <laughs> You'll have to take it up with yourself. <laughs> but no, it's completely true. It's all controlling women's dress is all about men. And I think men really need to think a little harder about why they are so obsessed with what women are wearing. Well, the burkini ban is, although it's it's been voided by a high court in France, it's going to be defended by the conservative candidate for uh, for Prime Minister Sarkozy in the coming elections. And of course, it's not the only proposal about Muslim women's appearance in public that's currently uh, uh, on the agenda in France. What, what else can you tell us uh, is now required of Muslim women and, and what's been proposed? The, the latest thing is uh, some politicians want the hijab to be banned from the universities. Yes. Up till now, it's been banned from uh, public schools. And this here again is it's saying, you know, well, if you want to wear a headscarf, you can't get a higher education. So is, is the idea to create this, this class of religious women who will be less educated, less able to get a job, um, more you know, more forced into uh, an immigrant community with that, with fewer ways to, um, to expand their world and to be independent. Cause that's what it's really all about. You know, all this stuff about women, it's really all about how independent can a woman be? Well, a woman who can't get a job and a woman who doesn't have any education, the chances of her being an independent person are much less than if she has access to those social benefits. It's not just about what you wear. It's the consequences for Muslim women of these bans on religious dress. If you wear a hijab, just the headscarf, uh, you cannot get a government job um, because the government, jo the government is supposed to be a religion-free zone. And, you know, if you're thinking of how to include people, how to make them more part of a secular society, then uh, letting women... <laughs> work at government jobs, which in France is an enormous sector of the economy, it, it includes daycare centers, for example, then it's really counterproductive. What it does is it, it further excludes Muslim women from uh, the larger society. If you wanted to help women escape the subjugation of Orthodox religion, Katha, where yeah. would you start? Uh, I think you have to do a lot of things. That I think secular education is really important. I think um, making con making contacts outside those narrow narrow communities is very important. I mean, there are, for example, in London, there are Orthodox Jewish sects where the kids basically don't learn English. They have an entirely religious education conducted in Yiddish. Well, by the time you're a teenager and you're beginning to think, hey, maybe this isn't for me, you have an awful lot of catching up to do. And those, those ultra-Orthodox sects also preach, you know, women are for cooking and cleaning and bearing children, that's it. And in some, they're not even supposed to drive. There's a, a, a rabbi who has said they shouldn't go to, women shouldn't go to college. You know, so it isn't just Islam. Here's another really good example is the Amish in America were given by the Supreme Court 
the right to pull their kids out of school after the eighth grade, which they wanted to do because the more education you get, the less likely you are to want to be an Amish farmer for your entire life. The more likely you are to ask questions and the more opportunity you have to do other things. So I think that was a very misguided ruling. Um, I think that parents should not be able to close off their children from the larger world in that way. Um, In the United States, we seem to be uh, more and more interpreting religious freedom to mean the freedom to override the normal uh, rules of society. And I think that's really a mistake. One closing thought. While France continues to debate uh, banning the burkini and the headscarf and other forms of religious clothing for women, other countries have taken a different route. In Canada, instead of banning the headscarf, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, famed for their red serge tunics and their their broad-brimmed felt hats, announced this summer that female officers will be allowed to wear the hijab, the headscarf. The Mounties have allowed Sikhs to wear the turban of their faith since 1990. Why can't we all be like the Mounties? Yeah, in the immortal words of Rodney King, why can't we all just get along? I mean, who is harmed if a Mountie wears a hijab or a, or a turban? Really? Nobody. And you see, you know, it's like um, Orthodox Jewish men wear, wear a yarmulke. Who is harmed by that? Nobody. Katha Pollitt, her new column in The Nation is about the battle over the burkini. Thank you, Katha. Thanks so much for having me on. This weekend is Labor Day, America's official answer to May Day, the day to celebrate workers' revolution. On Labor Day weekend, it's traditional to contemplate the state of the labor movement and the working man and woman in the country today. And so we turn to Harold Meyerson. He's executive editor of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the L.A. Times and other publications. We reached him today in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, let's start with some good news about uh, the labor movement in America. California is a place where the Democrats control the state government, and California has had some very good news for labor. Uh, As we tape today, we've just heard the news that the California legislature passed the Farm Workers Overtime Bill, which was a huge struggle. Tell us about that. Well, it was a struggle because, as you pointed out, even though the Democrats have almost two-thirds of the votes uh, in each house of the legislature, they had trouble uh, getting this bill through the assembly. In fact, the first time it came up in June, it uh, it didn't get a majority. It was three votes short. What, what, What happens is that a lot of the Democrats from agricultural areas, uh, perhaps perversely, uh, respond to the pressure of uh, agribusiness rather than the farm workers. But uh, this time around, uh, the farm workers themselves demonstrated they had considerable support from the Speaker of the Assembly, Anthony Rendon, and uh, the bill passed. It had already passed the state Senate, which is a more liberal body. Uh, the bill passed this, uh, this uh, Monday, actually. Uh, in the legislature, uh, and now it goes on to uh, Jerry Brown. So this bill will help more than 825,000 workers. They will get time-and-a-half pay for working more than eight hours in a day or more than 40 hours in a week. They will get double pay for working more than 12 hours a day. This isn't going to happen right now. It's going to be incremental over four years. There's another weird provision that the governor could suspend overtime pay uh, for a year if the economy falters. So obviously some compromises were made along the way here. Yeah, well, they had to pick up those extra votes that they didn't have in June. And so uh, they did, in fact, uh, create some uh, exceptions here and exceptions there. But really what I think this demonstrates in a larger sense is the whole non-universal fragmentary nature of what we think of as the uh, American welfare state, something that on a national level, Bernard uh, uh, Katznelson has written about so well in his book on the New Deal, pointing out that 
the right to unionize and uh, the right to collect Social Security and all these things when they were enacted in the 1930s excluded farm workers, domestic workers, etc., because it needed the votes at that point of Southern uh, representatives and senators, just as the bill which just passed in Sacramento needed uh, some votes from uh, agricultural areas in order to pass. And so, uh, you know, the down and out of society come late to the standards which the rest of uh, the rest of the country enjoys, like the overtime standard. But at least in California, for agricultural workers, now those standards have been equalized. Continuing to look at what's happened in California for the working class on this coming Labor Day weekend, California raised the statewide minimum wage to $15, again, incrementally until 2022. How significant is that? Oh, it's huge. It affects millions of California workers. California, particularly Southern California, is an economy that really the the middle has fallen out of that that, that economy, not the bottom. When uh, aerospace uh, really downsized at the end of the Cold War, uh, many of the middle-income jobs in California just evaporated along with it. At the same time, you had huge migration and a a large number of low-wage service sector jobs were created, uh, whose pay has been stagnant uh, for for a a long time. And so first the cities in California, the big liberal cities, first San Francisco, then Los Angeles, uh, passed a $15 uh, minimum wage provision. Uh, And then uh, the state followed. And uh, this was something that Jerry Brown uh, signed. And it's it's something that is is going on in in liberal cities and states across the nation. Uh, California raised its minimum wage to $15 uh, within the 48 hours of the time that New York raised its minimum wage to $15, both both of them to be phased in over a number of years. So uh, the gridlock at the federal level is being countered in in states where there is a liberal government at the state level. Although I should point out on, on the day we're doing this interview that uh, it recently passed in the New Jersey state legislature but uh, today, Tuesday, uh, Chris Christie vetoed uh, the $15 minimum wage in New Jersey. Shows the reason not to have Republicans in, in state power, which is... Uh, not, not to mention Chris Christie being the head of the, God forbid, Trump transition team. So uh, yes. keep, keep that in mind as well. California, where the Democrats have almost two-thirds majorities in both houses of the legislature and every state elected office, California also extended paid family leave and established paid sick days. These seem like complicated, maybe small things, but they're not small things, are they? No, they're not small things at all. And this is one of those areas where uh, the nation uh, as a whole lags behind every other nation on Earth, with I think the exception of Papua New Guinea uh, and Oman. (laughs) Which, which, which do have paid family leave and paid sick day. We have, you know, in some sense, the most cruel and mitigated form of capitalism, which grants workers fewer rights than, uh, than anywhere else. But again, as, as with the minimum wage, a few states uh, have gotten out ahead on, uh, on paid sick leave and, uh, and, and paid family leave. Connecticut and, and California lead the pack there. And again, there are cities where, in, in states where, Cities have the power to do this, like San, in California, San Francisco got out again ahead of the state on this. So there's there's definitely a pattern of uh, of federalism uh, to a degree justifying uh, uh, Louis Brandeis's famous assessment of of states as laboratories of democracy. Although in some cases in these in this day and age, it's more cities uh, which tend to be more progressive than states that are the real laboratories of democracy. So the things we've talked about for uh, California workers, overtime pay for farm workers, higher minimum wage, paid family leave, paid sick days, these all have to do with with pay. California has also done something tremendously important for its uh, working class and poor people. It's gone farther than almost any state uh, in the adoption of Obamacare and in the expansion of, uh, of Medi-Cal for poor people. This is also a huge accomplishment for a Democratic-controlled state. It is, uh, at a time when, frankly, Obamacare is in, is in some trouble because the ma- major health insurance companies uh, aren't hitting their profit margins. And so, so Aetna was recently one that bailed out 
in most states from being in the Obamacare market. California has been expanding it and uh, trying to expand it to immigrants and even undocumented immigrants, which is really a reflection of California's two things, of California's demographics, but also of the degree to which the Latino community and other communities in California have won a, a level of political power that they don't really have in other states. And so that's reflected in the expansion of, of Medicaid uh, and, and those kinds of programs in California. I might add, you know, a, a lot of that is the high level of representation of uh, Latinos and other minorities in the legislature, and, and that, that's kind of an unintended consequence of term limits. Huh. Uh, if the state didn't have term limits, there would be a, a number of uh, very old white guys still as a majority in the legislature, but such is not the case, and the legislature is a highly diverse body, much more reflective of the actual population of the state. We've been talking about the Democrats, the Democratic Party, doing all these things, but hasn't it really been uh, a small number of big labor unions that have really pushed these things and make them happen in California? Well, of, of, uh, they've certainly uh, uh, promoted them, yes, although I must say the, 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 farm, the, the overtime for farm workers was, was promoted by a, a very small and not very wealthy uh, union at all, the United Farm Workers, yes. uh, which has tremendous symbolic power, but, but actually a rather small membership and really no treasury to speak of. But a lot, certainly a lot of the fight for 15 has been backed by California's largest union, the Service Employees International Union, which has about 2 million members nationally, but 700,000 of them are in California. So it is the 800-pound, 700,000-member <laughs> gorilla of, uh, of California politics, and it has been the, really the, uh, uh, the real push behind the fight for 15 all over the country, and they should get tremendous credit for that, particularly since this has not been a campaign that has engendered any new members, but it has managed to raise the standards for low-wage workers in uh, really all over the country because while there are states that lots of states that haven't raised the wage to uh, $15 some have raised it to 10 some have raised it to 11 and you have employers like uh like Walmart which uh, raised their wage to uh, I think 10 bucks an hour so it it's had really a tremendous effect for workers all across the country even though these, this campaign has cost SEIU a ton of money without, as I said, bringing in one more dollar in, in dues membership uh, fees. So California is important not only as a laboratory for democracy, but just because so it has such a huge population and such a huge economy. Uh, we are told now California has gone from being the eighth largest economy in the world to the sixth largest economy in the world. Uh, a lot of California chauvinism out here uh, about that. So this is uh, uh, helping uh, truly millions of people. But maybe there was there's uh, good news for the working class outside of California, elsewhere in the United States on this Labor Day weekend? Well, there are certainly states that have done uh, progressive things. As I mentioned, New York raised its minimum wage to $15. Yes. At the national level, uh, anything that has to go through Congress uh, hasn't moved at all since the Republicans took Congress uh, in 2011. But the Obama administration has gotten really a lot of progress for workers out of both Labor Department rulings and National Labor Relations Board rulings recently. Uh, just in the last week, in a really landmark decision, the National Labor Relations Board overturned a previous ruling that the Bush National Labor Relations Board had instituted in, in 2004. And what happened this past week was that the National Labor Relations Board said that Graduate students at private universities who are employed as teaching assistants or research assistants can, in fact, unionize. This was a case brought by the grad students at Columbia University, my alma mater, and uh, the court said that, yeah, well, you know, it, if it if it uh, works like a duck, it's probably a worker, you know, like any other duck. And uh, <laughs> okay. uh, they said that uh, uh, they, these these folks can unionize. But the AFL-CIO estimated that there are probably 100,000 uh, uh, TAs and RAs around the country uh, who could therefore join unions. And uh, there's a slew of unions 
that have been trying to organize uh, graduate students. Uh, oddly enough, in the uh, Northeast around Columbia, the most active union has been the United Auto Workers, which has a tradition of representing uh, some university employees in that part of the country. But it, it was really a signal victory for uh, for an important part of of uh, sort of the uh, intellectual working class. Last thing we should contemplate here as Labor Day weekend uh, approaches is the dark side of the American working class, and that, of course, is membership in unions. Right. Well, it's uh, I, we, we don't have the figures yet uh, uh, for the last year, but it, over the last uh, half century, it's fallen from uh, you know about a third of the workforce to about 11% of the workforce. And in the private sector, it's fallen from over 40% of the workforce to uh, under 7%. And so that, that's a huge problem. And the Economic Policy Institute has just come out with a study uh, today, Tuesday, showing that the effect of the declining rate of unionization over this time period has been to reduce the average wage of working class men by over $2,000 over the last several decades. So it's, it's, it's one of the major contributory factors to the evisceration and the steady erosion of the American middle class. Harold Meyerson in Washington. Happy Labor Day, Harold. Happy Labor Day to you, John. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Our recording engineer is Ernesto Oriano. Our engagement editor is Annie Shields. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.